Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the presidential candidate of the Green Party and the Socialist Party in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. And today we have back as a guest, Yulia Yushchenko, an eco-socialist from Ukraine. Uh, she's a senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Greenwich in the United Kingdom. She's the author of a book that really puts what's going on now in Ukraine in context. It's called Ukraine and the Empire of Capital from Marketization to Armed Conflict. And we'll have a link for that in the chat. Um, as I said, she's an activist with eco-socialist feminist, uh, Ukraine solidarity movements in Europe. And she's a member of Sociani Ruk, which is a social movement that's a translation, a democratic socialist organization in Ukraine. And we're here at a conference in at Concordia University in Montreal, and it's called the Great Transition. Great Transition Out of Capitalism is what we're talking about in these various uh, formats and, and, and meetings. And Yulia gave a talk yesterday on democratic socialism or barbarism, preconditions for peace. So Yulia, Thanks for being on again. We're down the hallway from each other, so we don't get an echo. And uh, before we get into, you know, your article, why don't you just talk about your experience growing up in Ukraine, first in the Soviet Union, and then as when Ukraine became independent, how you got into left politics and that milieu, and and then you're just back. You just, I think you just flew here from Ukraine, so you don't look bad, no jet lag. So um, I know, am. <laughs> okay, well, I know you're going to do a good job. Just, uh, you know, wrap up that introduction part by talking about, you know, what's going on with the war in Ukraine that you've just been a witness to. Um, thank you very much for having me back. Uh, a long overdue follow-up, uh, I might say. Um, uh, I, I did just come back a few days before coming with a short stopover in London from Ukraine. Um, I went there to visit my friends and family and my comrades and be with my organization for the May Day uh, conference uh, and to also have uh, meetings with local activists and trade unionists to talk, about, to talk with them about what kind of challenges they face, uh, which of them are pre-existing and exacerbated by the war uh, and which of them are new and what to do about it, what kind of political strategies, activist strategies we can deploy uh, in order to uh, to help uh, an average working Ukrainian or those out of work, indeed, uh, labor in the in a broad sense to to uh, face those difficult challenges in Ukraine, but also through international solidarity work. Uh, I'm also involved in, in a number of events that will take place uh, uh, in June in in London. There will be a big Ukraine recovery conference. The first one of its kind uh, was held in Lugano last year, also in the summer, uh, and its aim was to uh, design this, like a large scale framework for uh, in and post-war reconstruction of Ukraine. And some of the things that I see in those frameworks is that the continuation of neoliberal marketization politics that uh, will, of course, uh, jeopardize the achievement of the big aims that are set out in that so-called plan, but we can talk about it later. Um, 
I've uh, I've been concerned with the problems of Ukraine political economy. As a Ukrainian growing up in Ukraine, I was born in USSR in 1982, and it was still USSR when I went to school. And uh, I I've witnessed the disruption of the post-Soviet transition in Ukraine firsthand. Uh, I come from working class background. Uh, my uh, relatives come from peasants, from laborers. Uh, one of my grandfathers was uh, worked in the quarry after the Second World War. He was at the front. Uh, and then he worked in the chocolate factory uh, that then got uh, privatized and bought by uh, Poroshenko, the Russian one. Um, and uh, the, uh, many of my family members were involved in uh, different forms of production, including subsistence agricultural production. And then when USSR, but also they had day jobs, and when USSR fell apart, I saw this, the, the transformation of the class fabric of society firsthand, like how socioeconomic inequalities that didn't exist before started emerging before my eyes. And there was, there was so much happening. There was some resentment towards USSR and the politics that existed there, but also there was this disruption in the fear and the unknown and uh, lack of income, need to rely on subsistence agriculture, uh, emergence of extreme riches and also poverty that wasn't seen before. And it was happening very rapidly and in a very almost uh, very often literally physically violent ways. And uh, throughout my university years, I was observing that kind of solidification of this, what I later in my work called neoliberal kleptocracy regime, right? And uh, I, I struggled to find uh, appropriate language to describe what was happening before my eyes. I said I needed the language of socialist theory without knowing that that's what I needed. And when I uh, in 2004, I went, as I was trained as an interpreter in Ukrainian in 2004, uh, I went to do a master's degree at Sussex University and I landed in the international relations department where there were a lot of uh, excellent left-wing academics. Uh, and I, I started reading uh, Marx and Gramsci properly and finally things fell into place. I had the language before me that helped me make sense and describe those violent processes uh, of social disruption and economic disruption that I have seen in Ukraine. And from there on, uh, I have been, uh, uh, I've, I've, I've been working in the uh, neo-Gramscian political economy tradition. Uh, and uh, I've, I've made it my, my life's work to comprehend what's happening in Ukraine and elsewhere. And like, you know, what, what also Ukraine, Ukraine's transformation after the USSR fell apart what it means in the context of global political economic shifts and power dynamics and ideologies and narratives and institutional frameworks because no country is isolated in this world and those processes of, inst of instilling of market doctrine in post-soviet states they of course also made uh they they, they happened as part of the uh global pro pro process of, uh, of the spread of what I call in my book, metaphorical is an empire of capital. Uh, so the, 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 the imperialism of the capitalist mode of production and uh, what it brings with itself um, around the world. And now we see it in the, in the newly invigorated militarized form 
that kind of the process of the uh, spread and clash uh, in spread spread and clash in the empire of capital. We see that in Ukraine now in the form of an armed conflict where Russia is uh, conducting a neo-colonial invasion in Ukraine in an attempt to control its resources, its people, and reinstill itself as an imperial power that it never forgotten it once was and always wanted to be. So, so say a few, you know, words about what you saw, you know, when you were back in Ukraine, you just got back. So describe what's going on, what's happening with your people and the people of Ukraine generally. Well, what uh, what I what I saw is uh, there, there are there are a lot of things, of course, and it's impossible to cover all of them. But I'll I'll, I'll speak to I'll speak about it in the same vein that I usually discuss uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Look, looking at class dynamics, looking at the ecological dynamics, social dynamics. What I see is um, an ideological, of course, as well. What I see is the uh, is a fantastic grassroots solidarity that has emerged uh, across the country. It was in, for, it was in the making uh, since the first invasion uh, by Russia in 2014. And um, so there were some networks information and kept solidified through those years. But since the beginning of the war, they have uh, spread and have become quite institutionalized. Uh, and some of them are more, uh, more liberal, some of them are non-ideological, overtly at the very least. Um, some are simply dealing with meeting people's and, and the army's basic everyday needs. And in that sense, that kind of grassroots material solidarity uh, is, is quite phenomenal. It does not uh, call itself very often by what would be recognized as some sort of socialist language. And in that sense, a lot of this solidarity work ends up being obscured for a Western eye when they look at what's happening in Ukraine. And that also, in, 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 in the way, I think, is uh, kind of the search for specific linguistic signifiers by, uh, by, by foreigners who are trying to understand what's happening in Ukraine is obscuring, in, is obscuring the ability to see what actually actually is going on on the ground. So we need to be thinking about observing the material reality rather than the language in which it is framed, even though the language, of course, is important. So there is a lot of solidarity. There is also a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, internal, internalization and formation of neoliberal subjectivity. There is a lot of narratives about resilience, self-reliance, uh, and uh, defying uh, and fighting back the oppression. And that is admirable and fantastic. But at the same time, what we see is the retreat, the retreat of the state uh, from its uh, function to actually provide for society because uh, grassroots, volunteer, donation streams take care of those things. And in that, and of course, it is fantastic that there is this solidarity, and it's fantastic that there are, there are support networks and donation streams. But it shouldn't be used by the state as an as an excuse to withdraw even further from its function to support the social reproduction in the society. And the dangers that I see in that is that there is international internalization at individual level of that responsibility for owns destiny and well-being that can be very easily and is already easily instrumentalized by the neoliberal government 
to to not uh, to actually to further shrink the state. What I what I see a lot uh, as well is uh, that there is a lot of socioeconomic inequality. That there is much more poverty. Um, that uh, what I've also gathered from talking with activists and trade unionists, and this is you know, the, uh, the the tropes that I've already identified before this visit, but it got further reaffirmed in these conversations that uh, the, uh, there isn't, um, uh, that there, there isn't a, a, a constructive dialogue between labor and the state, that uh, there, has, there has been disengagement uh, in this, for example, recovery plans and the current liquidity of the damage process. There's been a withdrawal of the state from, from constructive dialogue with trade unions. Uh, we know that there's been, uh, that the war has been used to further attack labor rights, to further disempower an average worker, and to further, uh, to, to, uh, to introduce more cuts to public spending uh, and uh, increase responsabilization for struggle actual problems on the population. It must, of course, also be said that the budgetary constraints are extremely harsh uh, in Ukraine. It's a heavily indebted country, uh, and some of its debts has been put on, on, on freeze, but not all of them. IMF conditionality and on fiscal restraint hasn't been removed, and a lot of emphasis is still being put on the private sector leading uh, the current kind of liquidation of the war damage phase and then the further uh, post-war recovery phase. And uh, and there, what there isn't is there isn't a war economy. There hasn't been a takeover of key industries. There hasn't been uh, a, kind of, uh, a reorganization of an economy in a way that everything concentrated works towards the military effort. That hasn't quite happened. And that, of course, exacerbates socioeconomic inequalities and problems that existed before. A lot of people who are vulnerable economically or otherwise they even further made vulnerable. There are many people who live uh, in frontline regions who refuse to be evacuated, even though there is danger to their lives on a daily basis, simply because they do not know where they're going to end up, how they will be looking after themselves. And there isn't, there aren't coordinated programs to support people who need, who, who have pushed into displacement. So there is, there are frustration, there is a lot of resilience and perseverance and solidarity, but there are also a lot of frustrations. There is increasing poverty, there is tiredness, there is frustration, there is frustration with the government as well, that the neoliberal politics uh, that people were fed up before the war started are continuing during the wartime. And that kind of social discontent is at quite a high level. Uh, uh, but the first priority that most people put before themselves is bringing the war to the end. But, but at the same time, there is a brewing social discontent with an ongoing neoliberal politics that the current government and parliament will have to deal with rather sooner than later if they do not want to have serious public serious popular unrest on their hands on top of a massive demographic catastrophe that came with displacement and with large refugee flows so you i, I think it was you or it was another ukrainian in sociony who said uh the popular attitude of a lot of people is a socialism that dare not speak its own name was that you or yes. is that yeah, I thought it was. That was you. my phrasing. Yeah, I think uh, you know that's what you you were just describing. So uh, why don't you you know go right into 
what you talked about here at the conference, socialism or, or democratic socialism or barbarism in the preconditions for peace. Um, yeah, so it is, uh, thank you for bringing this up. Indeed, it is, it is quite, um, quite an interesting thing uh, about Ukraine that is not dissimilar to other post-Soviet societies, but in Ukrainian case, it is quite acute, this whole kind of rejection of certain language and terminology while essentially wanting socialist politics. The reasons that some that some some of the socialist conventional kind of left-wing terminology is being uh, is not being warmly embraced currently by many, uh, to put it diplomatically, is precisely because of what Putin's Russia has done with the legacy of USSR, with the shared history of the Soviet Union, and how they they've used this shared history and experience to uh, legitimize it in their narrative invasion and annihilation and assim an, annihilation by assimilation of Ukrainians through the current invasion so uh, at the same time there were some some parties in Ukraine who called themselves socialist even communist who were in the pocket of oligarchs and were doing a lot of anti-labor uh, politics uh, since Ukraine became independent so it's understandable why there isn't trust amongst uh, population to certain tropes, narratives, symbols, and terminologies. But when you look at sociological surveys of what kind of uh, provision of services, what kind of uh, what kind of country and what kind of institutions and state administration people want you realize that what they want is a socialist state. They want well-funded public services. They want to have uh, affordable, well-deployed infrastructure. Uh, they want to have uh, social securities, decent pensions, jobs, the rest of it, social housing. Uh, and you, one, if you understand, for anybody who understands how economics works and how politics and ideologies works, you understand that what people want is an, a democratically run socialist country. Right, uh, but again, it's something that people wouldn't necessarily dress in that terminology because of the context uh, in which uh, Ukrainian politics is right now, the contingency of this Russo-Ukrainian war, and the narratives that come out of Kremlin. So the people feel that they need to discursively, it's a sub some sort of subconscious process, they need to distance themselves from anything that's kind of Russian and Soviet because of the context of this war. But overwhelmingly, people do want socialist, uh, do want the democratic socialist makeup. The whole narrative of deoligarchization, the narrative of social justice, uh, the narrative of decent wages, living conditions, and health and safety at work. That is what socialist state brings in. People are talking about redistribution when they talk about removing oligarchs. Uh, and uh, and their excess wealth. They are saying the same thing, but in a different language. So we need to be hearing what the message is that people are saying, rather than being nitpicky with the terminology that they use. So in that sense, I think once we start looking at, once we start doing sort of deep anthropological, deep anthropological, sociological understanding, analysis, of what that is, that is the social, what, what is the public demand for what kind of politics, then we start understanding that the overall uh, mood in the country is much more left than it may appear at the first glance. 
So when you say socialism or barbarism, uh, going forward, you know, preconditions for peace and then reconstruction, you know, how does that, you know, fit in? What's the fork in the road there between socialism and barbarism? Well, the fork in the road is this, and it's quite, it is quite acute in Ukraine at this point. And we've arrived at that fork in 2013, 14 already, when Yanukovych was pushed to flee. There's been a lot of dispossession and socioeconomic deprivation and inequality that has emerged in the process of market transition, quote unquote, formation of, of neoliberal kleptocratic regime and capitalist, uh, however odd and, in this, uh, and specific uh, structures in Ukraine. And the, the level of so the, the degree of social discontent and frustration has been growing over the years, and it's it, it spilled into mass protests and the 2013 14 protests that essentially then pushed Yanukovych to flee the country and uh, preconditioned the Russian invasion and annexation of Crimea. Um, those protests were against the oligarchic regime. So there, there is a public understanding that, that there, is a, there is a high social injustice going on. There is socioeconomic injustice. They know who their class enemy is. Again, they may not use that language, but if people are, when people are saying that we want to get rid of oligarchs and injustice, and you and I may be talking about class war, it's the same thing. Right, like even though people are using different language, but it is ex essentially the same thing. An average Ukrainian knows that oligarchs are wealthy because they've been robbing them blind. They have become capitalists at the expense of dispossession of somebody else. So, in 2014, already all of these politicians slash oligarchs and their cronies, when they came to address the protests, they were booed by the protesters. People demanded regime change. They demanded new faces, uh, and. Uh, the situation got quite combustive uh, and uh, to the point that the president felt he needed to flee right so this is and th th this is the this is also the forms of barbarism that i'm talking about militarized uh, militarized conflict social uh, social conflict clashes of people in the streets uh, people confronting in uh, in protest their government and asking them to get out those are forms of barbarism as well. I'm not trying to disparage what, was, what protesters were doing, but this is to highlight that there is a lot of social destabilization and disorder that might be, might be coming. In 2014, when Russia uh, annexed Crimea very quickly after Yanukovych has fled, the oligarchic regime has um, instrumentalized the need for a commander-in-chief, uh, for a new president to be an experienced person, and managed to kind of to push Poroshenko to become president uh, by saying that look, there is a there is an invasion going on that we need to have somebody in charge who already has been around. So we're going to let's 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 get somebody with experience, and then we will do the change of government later. In five years' time, Poroshenko gets booted out and Zelensky gets voted in. It was, and I write about it in my work, it was a protest vote against the regime that continued with neoliberal politics and expropriation of the population, right? Without redistribution that they were promising, without socioeconomic justice being reinstalled. And uh, by now, long story short, this, this that 
the kind of promise that and the, the hope that was placed into Zelensky, and partly it was hope, partly it was, uh, as I mentioned, the protest vote against the regime, that that kind of trust was also exhausted. And the, an average Ukrainian is extremely frustrated with what's happening in the parliament. They're extremely frustrated with what's happening in the government. Uh, they, they feel completely betrayed by the political elite, right? And they see that whoever looked like new faces in this party, um, uh, the servants of the people party, that those those new faces didn't deliver new politics. They were a populist project that still continued with neoliberal politics that was favoring oligarchs and not average people. Now we have a situation where there is a large-scale war in the country, and during the war, the government, instead of... They, they, they push the narrative of how uh, all Ukrainians are heroes and they're protecting the country, while at the same time removing social protections from them, not supporting uh, the display persons as much as they uh, should be not supporting the refugees as much as they should be uh, talking about cutting wages to the military, those who are actually on the front lines, and people feel betrayed. And if you listen to what is to what the uh, to what people in the battalions on the front line are saying, they are talking about uh, uh, about. Um, frustrating the government, to put it diplomatically, as soon as the war is over, because they feel that the political class have betrayed them. And that 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 is the barbarism I'm talking about. I fear large-scale armed confrontations on the civilian level in the country should there not be redistributive politics, economic justice, and uh, uh, all sorts of social and ec ecological justice is done through the reforms that will be necessary to transform Ukraine after the war and in during the war as well because we do not know how long the war will be will be going on uh, this if and in that sense and this is an example of Ukraine but this this kind of uh, example can be also brought into the context of other countries and, and indeed of global politics. There has been so much injustice done to large swathes of the population and their patience is on its last legs. And what we have seen through after the great financial crisis and during the pandemic years is that the tiny minority of people, the global oligarchy, continue accumulating large amounts of money, billions and trillions of uh, dollars equivalent, while uh, it is on the backs of the most vulnerable that most of the effort to protect social order and, and ecological uh, future resides. And, uh, the, and the, the limits of patience of the population are coming to its end. And we see that when there is so much socioeconomic depravity, when, when there is uh, so much displacement by wars and, cl and, and climate disasters, around the world. Clashes and wars are becoming even more and more likely. And so unless there is redistribution of the, uh, unless there is social, social, economic and ecological justice, unless there is distribution and, and meaning democratic socialism, proper funding of the social reproduction function of the state, proper funding of all sorts of public services, uh, ex, uh, uh, getting rid of global oligarchy and at, le at the very least taxing of the excess wealth. We will see more and more conflicts. The world will further reside, uh, will further uh, move towards 
the, towards barbarism, and that the final expression of which is genocidal neocolonial conquest, which is what we see now Russia doing in Ukraine. And again, sadly, in the global context, while Ukrainian conflict has, uh, Ukraine, the, the Russo-Ukrainian war has quite a lot of unique characteristics, but it's still in the in the process of the spread of the empire of capital and clashes between different competing uh, imperialist, semi-imperial forces. These kind of uh, armed conflicts are inevitable. They are a matter of if, uh, they're, they're not a matter of if, but they are a matter of when. And unless we remove these, the, this, uh, remove the preconditions for conflict, unless there is proper redistribution and empowerment of the masses against the oligarchy, there will, there will be more conflicts. And uh, and to that end, I think this the solution, the the, the 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 economic preconditions for the world peace are democratic socialism and redistribution and uh, justice. So let's uh, talk for a few minutes about the international context. <clears throat> As you know, and a lot of the people in the audience are Greens in the United States, and we've been split right down the middle on how to respond to this, what I would call a war for recolonization of Ukraine by imperial interests in Russia. And uh, one of the quotes from the written version of your article on democratic socialism uh, or barbarism uh, kind of indicts the international left that's not in solidarity. And, you know, let me just say before I read that, that, you know, I've talked to you and, and the people in Sociony Rup, the social movement, uh, the party of Greens in Ukraine, feminists, uh, number of trade unionists, anarchists, and one thing they agree on, we need arms to defend ourselves. And they expect solidarity from the international left, and they're only getting it from some of the international left. And the other thing that is an easy thing or a clear thing that we can do in solidarity and is that demand is that is to demand the cancellation of the debts to the IMF and Western banks. Uh, Ukraine is in court in, in the UK right now because they're trying to get out of $3 billion that Russia wants back from another loan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that debt uh, is a way that, you know, international capitalism keeps other countries in power. So that's the kind of thing we're being asked to do, but, uh, particularly in the United States, where I think people have an insular view, they they don't know they don't know where to find Ukraine on the map until maybe the last year. And Iraq, I mean, I talked to Marines that went to Iraq, and they still thought they were fighting Al Qaeda, um, and you know that, that they were fighting the people that blew up the the you know trade towers. So there's a there's a lot of just ignorance or deafness to what's going on around the world. So anyway, you you say this about the quote-unquote international left, uh, it's a challenge to them. Perversion in the inner, in the anti-war left, who somehow managed to simultaneously recognize Russia's right to defend its interests while denying the right of Ukrainians to defend their very lives and assert their national self-determination. So you want to elaborate a little bit on, on that statement? Um, yes, yeah, certainly. I... I find I find the some of the positions in international law to be quite contradictory, to be frank, because um, it feels to me it appears to me sometimes as if uh, people cannot fit more than one imperialism into their head at a time, and in their in their kind of long-standing 
anti-American sentiment, anti-US American sentiment, they are willing to support whoever and whatever appears to be uh, somehow a challenge to, to that US imperialism, right? But what I also find is that the perceptions very often of, of that segment of the left, uh, their perception of what constitutes US imperialism have not quite been updated for good 30 plus years. Similarly, they tend to fail to see Russia for what it has become since USSR fell apart, let alone are they capable to critically assess what USSR actually was. They have this idealized idea of USSR's paradise uh, and a socialist promise. And there were indeed a lot of uh, great political and economic achievements in USSR, but that also came with uh, slave and uh, slave and labor camp labor. It came with ethnic cleansing. It came with persecutions. So we need to be, in order to move ahead as, as an ideological project, however, perhaps, you know, with, with all the disagreements and differences, we need to recognize the mistakes uh, and horrors that have been committed in the name of socialism as well uh, as talk about their achievements so that uh, our critics do not have the upper hand uh, over us. Um, but this, the whole justification of what Russia is doing, I think like part of it, as you mentioned, like, you know, part of it is to do with ignorance. People do not quite know what Russia is, but they not only do they not know, but they do not want to hear. They don't want to listen. Every time uh, they hear, uh, they, they hear comments about uh, Russia or Ukraine that they disagree with, they are fast to dismiss them as either ill-informed or nationalistic or fascist or something along the lines, while themselves actually not knowing what they're, go what they're going on about. This, this segment of the international left, it seems to me, is much more concerned with their own purity and of ideological stance. Uh, it's quite narcissistic in the sense that it's quite ego-vulnerable. They do not like to accept that they may have been wrong in anything or there may be limitations to their analysis. They are concerned with preservation of own image. Uh, and in that sense, they are willing to sell down the river whole uh, swathes of territories with people on them as long as they are entrenched in their in their pseudo neutrality and ideological purity and they try to instrumentalize this pseudo objectivism of their position that you know there is some sort of like bigger logic there is real politic there are big powers and then they start looking for uh, some sort of uh, some excuses as to why Ukraine cannot be supported, uh, that, you know, there are some bad apples in Ukrainian army or that Ukrainians are not left enough. And what I, this piece that you've uh, quoted that I've just recently got published, what I talk about there is... Um, uh, is 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 the the purely you know moral case for why Ukrainians should be supported, but also 
there are other aspects as to why Ukraine should be supported. That piece was written as a response to uh, uh, to uh, Kogler's article called "Democracy or Dictatorship: The Moral Call to Defend Ukraine," and that was pure. That's a purely philosophical moral moral philosophy case as to why Ukrainians should be supported. And it talks also about universality of rules and universality of sanctions as values upon which we can build international politics that actually holds human life and survival uh, on this planet as and, and peace as core values. And unless we have those values as core internationally and especially on the left, how can we call ourselves to be better than those we are fighting? I've heard these arguments a lot, including yesterday at the meeting, that you know Ukrainians are not are neoliberal, so how can we support them? Well, we, you do not need to like every victim of aggression to accept that they have a right to defend themselves, to accept that their the quality of their character is not a justification for committing genocide on them. This is not how uh, th th this is th th this is a completely immoral. Uh, immoral position. At the same time, one of the things that I find uh, frustrating with these, um, with some of the segments of self-proclaimed anti-imperialist left, is that they've internalized the imperialist vision of the world, where there are big powers and there are power dynamics, and we need to accept that sometimes uh, certain uh, what they call peace settlements and concessions need to be made in order for international stability to prevail. And what I talk about this in this piece and what this specific symposium also other pieces uh, go into uh, in that symposium is that we should not be confusing international stability with peace. Because international stability at expense of some nations is uh, what's, what can be called a fake peace or phony peace. Because it means st international stability at expense of proxy or, or whatever you want to call them, conflicts in the periphery. And that in itself assumes this kind of hierarchical vision of the world, vision of the world where some people are more disposable than the rest where some countries are more important than the rest. And that kind of assumption to me is fundamentally counter anti-colonial. Because if we do not believe that every social group, every individual, every nation, nation as a social group rather than nation state, that every nation has a right to determine own destiny, then we don't have a leg to stand on as anti-colonialists. And this is something that's important to remember. If we internalize the vision that there are big powers and this is how things are, then we can never support any, any nation's fight of self-determination because they might lose, right? And, and uh, at the same time, I do hold that this is completely immoral to only support people in their right to self-defense if they're ideologically aligning with you. This is the same narratives that we get instrumentalized by the right for centuries, that there are deserving and undeserving poor. There are those who are better people and there are those who are worse people and those who are not good enough do not deserve to be treated as full humans. This is fascist rhetoric. This is very important because if anti-imperialist left internalizes this kind of divisive, uh, this kind of... Uh, uh, discriminatory approach to who deserves to be helped, 
That's international. That's internalization of fascist rhetoric. And at that point, to me, it stops being left. It is something else. It is something brown wrapped in a red flag. And I cannot support that. Yeah, I've been dealing with that in our debate in, in the Green Party. And uh, one of the responses I get from people when I point, you know, I will post a statement by one of your members of Soltiani Ruk or uh, the Party of Greens or environmentalists like Svetlana Romanko. And uh, they will say, oh, Howie's got this vision of this socialist utopia that's coming in Ukraine if they win the war and they don't exist. There aren't enough socialists to do that in Ukraine. And then they said in the resolution that Ukraine's losing the war as if you choose who you support based on who's winning. That's a might make rights argument. It's immoral. Um, but you made a point yesterday in the talk that we don't treat the Palestinian struggle that way. There's no strong socialist current in the Palestinian struggle at this point. In fact, it's moved to the right over the last 40 years. It's very Islamist in a lot of respects and authoritarian in others. But that doesn't present us, prevent us from supporting them. But somehow when it comes to Ukraine, people want to make exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think one way you summarize what you just talked about, and this is in your article, you say they, you know, these anti-imperialists, quote unquote, and also the pacifists are practicing what you call the anti-imperialism of amoral idiots. And I think what you're talking about is the morality and also the ignorance that's uh, a big problem. And uh, another statement that trying to get people to read your article, to read the whole thing. But, uh, and I heard you say this in, in some podcast or other, that, you know, you can be, when we're talking about Ukraine, an anti-imperialist and an anti-fascist, or you can be a pacifist, but you can't be both. Because it's immoral. If you don't distinguish between the violence of the aggressor and the violence of somebody defending themselves from the aggressor. And, uh, if you just say they're equal and everybody should stop, you're giving power to the aggressor. So anyway, I'm, I'm editorializing on, yeah. on what you were saying, but you yeah. know, you can go, you can take it from there. Yeah, but I, I agree with you completely. Uh, and there is, this is something that I, I kind of, I, I, I find quite baffling because you know, as you mentioned, I'm an eco-socialist and uh, I, I'm on the left and I'm, I'm a feminist and the right to defend yourself is a left value and it's a feminist value, right? And the, we, cannot, we cannot put uh, kind of a, a, a sign of false, like some sort of sign of false equivalence between the violence of the aggressor and the violence of, of those who are defending themselves. Uh, but also there is, you know, there is this na naivety and like, and that's why I talk about the kind of, uh, uh, this, you know, anti-imperialism of amoral idiots. Uh, and here their appeal is to ignorance, right? Like, you know, people who do not understand, who do not see this this war of neocolonial conquest for what it is. They refuse to actually engage with, with what Russia has become under Putin and what kind of projects they have been carrying out for years. And Ukraine is not the first and probably won't be the last unless Russia is stopped militarily. So one of the things that I find is often lacking in those analysis is that, uh, especially amongst those who are invoking peace at all costs, is that they never quite answer the question of how one can arrive um, at, at the peace 
uh, on whatever conditions without a military defeat of Russia. Like, how do you how do you get uh, uh, how do you get recognition of any sort of principles on which peace can be built when Putin uh, well, when kind of the vision of what of what peace might look like is so different from what Ukrainians wanted to be and what Russian what what uh, what Russia what Russian Federation wants it to be or Putin or Putin's regime. It's you know the jury is out of whose vision exactly that is, but I hope you get my meaning. Uh, uh, Putin and his uh, cronies, they openly declare that Ukraine is a non-state, that Ukrainians are non-people, uh, that they need to be, that, that they basically, it's, they do not recognize Ukraine as a, as a state and Ukrainians as a nation with any rights to self-determination. So if you do not, if, what kind of, how do you go to any negotiations from that? The, uh, Putin has annexed four regions of southeastern Ukraine, some of which some of those territories Russian troops do not even control, but those but they but Russia classes those territories as part of Russian Federation at this point. In their in their book, that is Russia by now. So how do you get how do you get Russian Federation to drop claims to those territories that they have illegally annexed without a military defeat? Also uh you know the people who who talk about how they support Ukraine's right to defend, but not, but they don't support sending arms to Ukraine. That is also yet another sort of like completely uh, unhinged position. So how can you possibly defend yourself against cruise missiles with a peace banner? It doesn't help. It really doesn't help. But I, but you're right. There are all sorts of like you know men, mental and and. Uh, uh, um, discursive gymnastics to which people desert to in order to justify that kind of position, mainly because they don't want to do anything with arms. Well, I also don't support violence, uh, but and neither do most of Ukrainians that are my friends, comrades, and family. Yet, if somebody comes to you with weapons and wants to kill you, you have a choice to let them kill you rape you maim you or you fight back by any means possible and that that situation is actually extremely clear-cut it's it's quite black and white in that sense you know you do not need to go like so all sorts of like additional attempts to explain away why uh ukraine cannot be supported militarily they are just some sort of mental gymnastics to excuse yourself from actually Having some sort of ulterior motives there, because if you if you if you support the right to defend of of a nation of a person against aggression, you wouldn't have a problem with supply of arms. What we often hear getting involved is that arms are coming from NATO, and very often in these narratives, also NATO and United States have been used interchangeably. Uh, and the the thing is that you know NATO at its inception and NATO now are quite different kettles of fish. There are a lot of unpleasant things that uh, I could say about NATO, but this is not this is not the time and the place to do it. But the bottom line is this. There is a country that's being attacked by, by another country that was its colonizer, that has a neo-colonial project that it openly declares, including the intention of genocide. And you need to get weapons from somewhere. There is no, there is no communist weapon stash around the world. 
that Ukrainians could go to if they wanted to. On top of that, in Budapest Memorandum that was signed uh, in mid-90s, when Ukraine gave up its weapons of mass destruction and nuclear arsenal, uh, what you, uh, United States, United Kingdom and Russia signed up that same memorandum as guarantors of security of Ukraine in case it is attacked uh, in, a, in an act of war. According to the document, US and UK sending weapons to Ukraine is them doing their obligation under the treaty that Ukraine signed when it gave up its weapons. And so now also when we hear uh, international, international conversations and on international left and elsewhere about demilitarization, we are also having them in the context of a country that gave up voluntarily its weapons of mass destruction and nuclear arsenal, and then it got attacked by one of the guarantors of its security. How in that kind of context can you talk about international demilitarization? Which, which countries will see this as an incentive to drop their, new, to the, to drop their weapons? It's a very complicated situation. And to that end, we need to have a left response to an international security question. What do we do when there is a war? When there is an invasion, where should countries turn to? If we are talking about international demilitarization, I am all for that, absolutely. But we also need to have a solution to what happens should there be a war. And if we do not have a progressive solution to that, that solution will always be with the right, that solution will be with military-industrial complex, that solution will be with big military powers. And there will always be these conundrums and dilemmas that we will have to be dealing with should any country be needing weapons and they will have to go to the old imperial, near imperial powers for help because there simply won't be anywhere else to go. It is as, as basic as that. So in a, a few minutes we have left, let's uh, see if we can answer some of the questions in the chat. Uh, one of them, that a guy named Scout Trooper 164, he, I think he asked it twice, uh, how is Russia going to hold on to their annexed land? Uh, and, and, he, and I forget in which version, but he talked about Ukraine is actually, you know, taking back land. I know they're taking back more than half the land Russia had at the peak back in March of the, uh, 2022. Um, so, and also talk about what's going on in the annexed territories. I mean, you're talking about genocide and uh, there are all kinds of war crimes, uh, annihilation by assimilation, in other words, cultural genocide. You talk about that in your article. So, uh, yeah, so the, the, the question is, you know, how does Russia expect to hold on to uh, land in Ukraine when the Ukrainians don't want them there? Um, so they generally it's like, how is Ukraine to hold on to things? So what, first of all, what's happening in the occupied territories is, Yes, genocide, annihilation by assimilation, torture, kidnappings, intimidation. There is a lot of takeover and looting of property uh, by Russian soldiers. In Kherson, that was liberated last year, for example, as soon as the city was taken over by Russian forces uh, early in the war, uh, lots of soldiers brought in their families, children, and just kind of set up as if it's their own town uh living in other people's homes um it's uh it's been a very complicated situation and then when russian when ukrainian army was pushing back 
a lot of those same families and soldiers pack up and run away because they understand they can't they can't kind of they can't hold on to that um the uh the the situation in the currently occupied territories is quite concerning not least in the context of this conversation about potential settlement and ceasefire because uh, and i also talk about this in the article that the peace that is demanded from ukraine is violence because people who stay in those occupied territories as well as people inside the russian federation and in belarus for that matter they are subject to systemic physical and individual violence on ongoing basis. So unless there is some serious sh uh, shift in the power, uh, in the kind of politics of Russia, there is something that could be interpreted as a defeat, uh, the defeat of Russia. It is very difficult to envisage that that kind of violence perpetuated towards the populations on any territory that's controlled by Russia will cease at any point soon. Um, if uh, if Ukraine is to push back and gain the territories that were taken uh, by force back, how how they would hold on to it? They, well, there are, there are quite a lot of components in that uh, in that question, many of which are to be settled in the future. It's too difficult to guess, uh, depending on how that liberation and when it happens. Different scenarios will have to be worked out. Some people talk about peacekeeping troops. Some people talk about demarcation zones. Um, but again, like you know, there are quite a few unknowns at this point to be concrete about those plans, but what, about what it might look like. But one thing that can be said is that uh, people in occupied territories do not want to live under Russian occupation. So uh, there is there is a lot of resistance now, and uh, and and uh, and one one other thing that we can that 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 kind of that tells us is that um, sh should and when these territories are liberated, it won't be difficult for Ukraine to hold on to those territories as long as Ukrainian army is uh, military supported and if there is some international settlement negotiated where it's not necessarily just Ukrainian troops but some sort of peacekeepers involvement is there international uh, uh, inter international observers international peacekeepers uh, being involved so that there is uh, a degree of impartiality in how uh, demarcation zones and front and, uh, and and borders are being monitored it is quite important to have an international presence there not least so that there can't be mutual accusations going on between different parts but again the most of this most of the elements of this kind of of this scenario is too early to talk about at this point i would think A lot, there are simply too many unknowns. oh no a comment i saw in the chat that i think is uh Important for American readers to understand, and that is, it's it's a case of American exceptionalism. It's the Green Party in the United States. It's confused and divided on solidarity with Ukraine. The rest of the Green Parties around the world, they're clear. You know, we're, we stand with Ukraine, and uh, if they need arms to defend themselves, we're going to try to get it to them. Um, so I, I think that's a case of the insularity and inward-lookingness of uh Americans, including a lot of Greens, unfortunately. Um, so Chris is in the background. He may have picked up other questions in the chat. That, uh, here we go. Amy L. Sachs, laugh out loud. I'm skeptical of the US government's stance on Ukraine because they've lied to me my whole life about our reasons 
for interventions in war. Doesn't mean I'm a tanky. I think she is expressing, you know, a common sentiment or belief among Americans and the Greens and on the left. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Amy, I I agree with you. And I'm not. I wouldn't. You wouldn't catch me saying that uh, there isn't. There is no U.S. interest involved in certain outcomes or current or or, or the process of this war. Of course, uh, there are a lot of different interests involved, uh, and depending on how the scenarios develop, those interests will be satisfied to different degrees. But it's still like you know there are a lot of different planes involved here. Right? Does you, do do U.S. companies have interest in Ukraine shale, gas, and lithium deposits? You bet. Does it mean that Ukrainians shouldn't be defended against Russian aggression? No. And those and there are dozens of other statements uh, that exist simultaneously, and some of them are contradictory. Reality, especially during the wars, is quite contradictory yes there are some parties there are some some parties that will benefit from this more than the other but the very fundamental thing here is this that the ukrainians ukrainians homes lives uh, nature of the country and ukraine is home to over 30 percent of the whole biodiversity of european continent all of that is at stake now and unless russia is kicked out of ukraine it will not stop russia is just some genocidal cult who do not care genocidal ecocidal anti-humanist cult who do not put any value in human life who do not put any value on environment who do not put any value on the future of our planet and our ability to survive in it they simply do not care and in that sense also that kind of regime needs to fall and it's not being anti-russian it's being anti genocidal Putinist regime that is also the biggest enemy of an average Russian person who this regime never cared about. And so if we also want to express, to my mind, solidarity with an average Russian, with Russian workers, it's also in the sense of international solidarity uh, with Russian workers that, Russia, that Putin's regime must be defeated because they won't stop in Ukraine. And they already openly talk about it. Whether and how they will do it or not is a matter of time for us to see. But that kind of regime needs to go. Uh, do the U.S. have ulterior motives and do they get involved in all sorts of wars? Of course they do. But again, two wrongs don't make a right. And until this war is over in Ukraine, for Ukrainians as well, for me and my comrades on the left, it is very difficult to fight the neoliberal onslaught of the government when you also have to fight missiles, when you, you lose your friends on a daily basis, when people are being raped and maimed and their houses are being bombed. It's important to stop the war while fighting and so that the fight against capitalism can be more effective. I had uh, Chris put in the chat when you were talking about feminists asking for arms in Ukraine to defend themselves. That was a manifesto that was written, I think Yulia was one of the signers, called The Right to Resist. And it was in response to Western feminists who said, we can't send arms to Ukraine. That's a violation of the feminist principle. To which, you know, these Ukrainian feminists had strong objection. So I think that's worth reading. It's in, uh, the link is to the journal Commons, which is the journal of the left in uh, Ukraine, which is a good thing to stay abreast of. 
And then I just had posted something that I found very useful in the anti-Vietnam War movement. It's an article by Hal Draper called The ABCs of National Liberation Movements. And he says a lot in there, but uh, a couple things he says is in every legitimate national liberation struggle, and this is back during the you know bipolar Cold War US and Russia period, uh, all imperialist powers are going to try to get their hands in the middle of it. But you shouldn't let that confuse you as to what, you know, the oppressed and exploited fighting for their national liberation. That's where you start. Um, the other thing he said, which I think is useful for us to think about, is while we militarily support Ukraine to get the Russians out of, of Ukraine, that doesn't mean we politically support the neoliberal government. And one thing I've observed, and Julia, maybe you want to comment on this, is that Zelensky's one thing, but there are people in that parliament who are just, I mean, they'd be to the right of the Libertarian Party in this country in terms of their neoliberal ideology. Um, but but what he says in there, yes, we give our military support to the forces fighting, in this case, the armed forces of Ukraine through the Ukrainian state. But we give our political support to the progressive movements in Ukraine, like Soltyani Ruk the party of greens, the trade unions, and so forth. So I just wanted to point out to people those resources I think are, are worth reading. Yeah, thank you, Howie. Thank you for pointing it out. And indeed, you know, uh, I, I wish there were other places to seek for military support for Ukraine than NATO, but alas, there aren't, right? And uh, when when you have so few options while being militarily attacked, can you be judged for going where you do, right? Uh, and that's also why I talk about, you know, having, like, thinking about the the, kind of the, the the left answer to the security question. And indeed, you know, it's one thing to, just because you support people's right to resist and defend their livelihoods, doesn't mean that you support their government in what they do. This war, it's not about protecting Ukrainian government uh, and uh, parliamentaries who indeed are completely brainwashed into the neoliberal ideological cult. They really true, they're true believers. They think that deregulation at war will bring functioning economy. They really believe that. And that is actually more dangerous in a sense than people who are simply instrumentalizing politics, but they know that actually, no, it won't work, right? So those who are true believers are more difficult sometimes to convince that the, what they're doing is wrong. But when we look at how economics is taught around the world, when we look about how state management is taught around the world, it is indoctrinating people into thinking that this is the way to do things. And so there is a lot of consciousness raising and transformation also of of uh, education institutions and doctrines that is important to happen so that we erase new cadre around the world who will be more critical about all of these dogmas, who will be looking for alternative solutions, who will, who will try to see things for what they are rather than reproducing certain mantras for which there is no evidence in real life. Right. So that is that is something that's important to to remember. And thank you so much for sharing the uh, the Draper's piece, because indeed we can we can be critical of governments while supporting the people of the countries, their right to resist. And we need to understand that when we put together, uh, when we try to express our solidarity, we're doing it from the position of class and from from the position of understanding the class structure 
of the world economy and the uh, and the militarized expression of class warfare that plays out in in wars like Russo-Ukrainian or Israel-Palestine or, or or many other right we are not supporting a nation state and the government we are supporting the people's right to resist and once they resist the aggression we continue building solidarity with them to help them build better politics in their countries so that it's more egalitarian so it's uh, so it's more democratic so that socioeconomic justice is restored and people can take their destiny into their own heads into their own hands in earnest so i'm going to have to go get my i'm running out of, of uh, power um, but i think some questions have just come up that deserve an answer uh, one of them, and I'll just briefly answer this, and then maybe I'll go get my power cord and Yulia can elaborate. But uh, somebody asked, um, Ukrainians were shelling the people of Donbass, over 10,000 killed, Azov and, and Nazis. And then uh, uh, if Ukraine had remained neutral, they would not have been invaded. Of course, Ukraine was neutral when they were invaded, and the numbers on the killings, Michael uh, Karajas has gone through this because there was an article in a magazine called Covert Bulletin where they said Ukraine had killed 14,000 people. The OSCE monitors, it was about half and half. Most of that happened in 2014-15. And, and I think the most important thing is look at aerial photos of uh, Mariupol or Bakhmut and compare that to Donetsk today. The city of Donetsk is within the artillery range of the Ukrainians. It has been for nine years, and it's standing, it's not rubble. Um, but I'm gonna let you continue because I gotta get near you to get a power cord and I don't wanna start to echo, so I'll be muted and then I'll be able to continue. So go ahead, uh, Yulia. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to run soon as well, but I'm going to try to answer some of these questions. Well, um, the... Uh, the question about uh, Azov Division uh, and the shelling of people in Donbass. Well, indeed, how we thank you for citing the numbers. Most people who were uh, who died died in fighting in the first years of the war, and as soon as Minsk agreements were negotiated and ceasefire started, uh, it was uh, mainly a couple uh, dozen people a year. And mainly, it was people who would uh, blow up on, a, on an exploded mine somewhere in the in the in the countryside. So, talking about Ukrainians shelling people for no reason is uh, simply inaccurate. There was uh, there was a phase of active fighting where uh, Russian-backed militants and indeed Russian military without insignia were shelling from. Uh, Donbas cities into Ukraine, into the rest of Ukraine territory. So th th there was an actually armed conflict between different groups. So uh, so when we talk about people who died during that time, we need to be talking about people who died in fighting and civilians who died as, as a result of shelling on either side of the front line, rather than Ukrainians shelling civilians, because that is inaccurate. Uh, and since, again, since the ceasefire was signed, uh, those, the, the casualties were borderline non-existent. Um, uh, Azov Division um, have, uh, have not existed for years. 
some of the fighters of that division have been uh, absorbed into the formal military and they are subject to the military to the centralized military command uh, some of them are indeed right-wing uh, extremists many not at all they simply joined the battalion because they would take most recruits in um, at the same time if we look at the um, uh, at, the, at the makeup of Ukrainian army in comparison to any other army that is not even in the state of war, we can see that, um, first of all, armies are what attracts right-wing people who want to fight. That is a standard thing. Um, so Ukraine is not unique in that sense. And uh, on top of that, over the years, my uh, good friend and comrade Taras Fedirko, uh, he's at Glasgow University now, he actually studies all of these different battalions and he looks at kind of how politically significant and how, how much popular support they enjoy in the country. And one of the conclusions that he's been drawing lately is that uh, these... Um, uh, we could be talking about uh, not so much the kind of spread of popularity of these right-wing groups, but rather their failure to garner such. Because uh, Porosh look at what's happened with Poroshenko going into the election and losing it catastrophically to Zelensky because he tried to absorb some of the right-wing rhetoric into his electoral campaign. People overwhelmingly rejected that. So... Is there right wing in Ukraine? Yes. Is there a more of it and then somewhere else in the world? Hell no. Even in the condition of a war, the pretext of which is non-existence of Ukrainian nation. Ukrainians voted, didn't in 2015 parliamentary elections, not one right wing party got enough seats to get, uh, to, got enough votes to get through a 3% uh, uh, bar, whatever it's called. Uh, they, they, not, not, in a, not, not one party got three percent votes to get seats in the parliament in the condition of a war, the pretext of which was the lack, the lack of Ukraine as a nation. So, in, and then compare that to what happened in France this year with elections, or Italy for that matter, who didn't have wars of aggression on the basis of national identity lack. So if we start looking at this context and start talking about the proportion of the problem with the right, we start understanding that actually, no, Ukraine is not a fascist state that tolerates right-wingers. Is there some tolerance of them? Yes. Is this an omnipresent popular thing? No, it is not. So we need to understand there are absolute terms of right and left politics, and there are relative terms. And relatively speaking, Ukraine is faring way better than most countries around the world. Look at what's going on in the United States, Proud Boys, and attempts to overthrow the government by Trumpists. In Ukraine, nothing like that happened, right? So we need to be, we need to be critical of what's going on in Ukraine, always look, uh, be also cautious about which way the politics can develop. But we also need to, uh, perhaps be realistic of what we can expect from different countries. There are all sorts of different purity tests that Ukrainian politics is being put through in this last especially year and a half, but since 2014 already. And some of those are extremely difficult to pass for any single one country. So we need to be realistic about what can be expected, right? And support the progressive forces that fight against the, uh, 
bad apples, so to speak. Um, yeah, about the neutrality. Well, yeah, Ukraine was neutral, and it was, was the, the NATO was not on the cards. And it's not about neutrality. Putin openly declares what his what his reason for invasion were. Ukraine is not a state. This is our territory. Ukrainians are just possessed Russians that they need to be to have uh, Ukrainianness kicked out of them or murdered. All of these talks about NATO are simply an excuse. Russia feels entitled. No, no, NATO didn't veto a peace agreement. There was no peace agreement on the table and NATO didn't veto anything. Uh, Zelensky wouldn't want to negotiate further the peace agreement because the, when, when there was, there were those negotiations were about to happen in Turkey. At that point, the north of Kiev, uh, the north of the country was liberated and there was an overwhelming evidence of genocide being conducted there and the public uh, the, the temperature of public anger was such that no president in his right mind would have signed any settlement with Russia at that point. So all of these talks about how somehow NATO stopped Zelensky from signing anything, no, it was actually finally a, 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 an expression of public view on how things should be. If Zelensky signed that agreement, he the, the country wouldn't tolerate him as president after that. That is my analysis of it. So I think, of course, NATO are influential and they, they take, they make a lot of, they have a lot of say in how things go in Ukraine for a combination of different reasons. But to say that they stopped this peace settlement from being signed uh, is a misunderstanding of the situation. In fact, actually, uh, first of all, we shouldn't be talking about NATO as if it's some sort of monolithic block because it's not different countries but as part of NATO have very different views on how this war should be going. United States had no appetite for this war to begin with. They wanted Ukraine to fall. And that's also a known fact. So did Germany. They had no, no appetite for this war to actually continue. They instructed Zelensky to move government to Lviv in the, as soon as the war started and basically lay over, uh, kind of roll over and let let things settle as they are. There was no appetite for it. So uh, so we need to be mindful of that. And um, yeah, but at the same time, uh, talking about NATO as being some sort of like, you know, pretext for invasion. Well, the Baltic countries have joined NATO way before Ukraine was even thinking about it. Somehow they didn't get invaded. We need to also think about what historical relationship and sense of entitlement Russia has over Ukraine. And it was about Ukraine actually going on into a path away from Russia and Russia wanted to grab on it. That had, that had much, that was a reason for invasion, not the NATO spread. Should Yanukovych not have fled and been kicked out of the country and actually stayed in power? And so, so they through, through economic connections, Russia could continue. Uh, uh, having economic hold on Ukraine, they wouldn't need an invasion. They needed an invasion because Ukraine decided to go a different route. And it was not about NATO. It was about something else. So I, I think perhaps uh, we're going to need to wrap up, wrap up around this. Uh, Howie, would you like to um, make any final comments? I can't hear you. I think you're muted. I, I was going to say, I, I wanted to add to what you were just saying about the so-called peace agreement that was almost agreed to late March, early April last year. Um, and this is something that 
uh, Code Pink and some of these other groups have been pushing out there. And it's just not true. I mean, and, and the way it got started was there was an article in Foreign Affairs by Fiona Hill and Angela Stent, and they said there was almost agreement last March or April. Well, last March or April, all of us following the news knew that. That wasn't news, but they used that as an excuse. And they pull out this little quote that almost an agreement. If you finish the paragraph, they talk about Putin and, and Lavrov not being, uh, they really didn't want it, you know, and they wanted to keep gaining more land at that time. And that's what happened. Um, everybody says Boris Johnson went there and said the West, collective West, won't let you negotiate with Putin. That's one reporter who, uh, and it was one report, and he, he was relying on anonymous sources in the Ukraine government. And then uh, two of your comrades in Sociani Group interviewed that reporter, and he said, uh, I didn't say Zelensky followed Johnson's orders. Johnson was just saying, don't trust the Russians, so that it had been totally misinterpreted. And uh, so the timeline was, on April 7th, Lavrov said, the proposal on the table, which was, you know, neutral Ukraine, non-nuclear Ukraine, both of which were non-nuclear and no foreign troops. That was already in the Ukrainian constitution. The non-NATO part would have to be changed in the constitution uh, because Poroshenko got it in there. Um, and then the status of the Donbass and Crimea would be cited diplomatically, not militarily, which probably meant some kind of referendum. You know, people would come back, international supervision, something like that. And... Lavrov said two days before Boris Johnson got to London or to Kiev, the proposal was unacceptable. Johnson was there on the 9th. On the 12th, Putin said the negotiations are a dead end. And Zelensky, even though I think you're right, politically, the idea that they would delay uh, to some diplomatic process the status of Donbass. Uh, in Crimea and the other occupied territories, the public wasn't going for that after Bucha. You know, it was just people were too mad. Um, but Zelensky kept saying right until June, he's ready to talk face to face with Putin to resolve this. So the idea that we, the US or somebody stopped the negotiations is just a myth. And there's a very good article um, in my Ukrainian name, remembrance isn't good, but. Uh, Two of your comrades, I think my, one might have been uh, Dennis Pilash. I'm not sure, but it was called No, the West Didn't Stop Negotiations. And that was in comments. So anyway, I just wanted to add that because it, it really irritates the hell out of me that Medea Benjamin's doing a national tour around her book, which says this nonsense. And I challenged her when she was in Syracuse. People challenged her around the country. It seems the facts don't matter. So anyway, I, I went on a rant. But uh yeah, we should wrap up. Um, you have any last thoughts you want to want to give, and then I'll say last. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'll just add that you know there is a running joke in Ukraine that uh, well, it's it's kind of throughout the whole centralist in Europe that um, uh, Putin is a secret agent working for NATO as their recruitment uh, doing their recruitment drive in the region because all of these countries that were on the fence forever are now lining up to join. So if he's if his uh, task was to stop countries from joining NATO, he's really terrible at achieving that aim, right? And and indeed, it's you know one of those many, if you like paradoxes, maybe it's not the correct word to use, but of uh, 
of this war that uh, instead of consolidating uh, something in the region is actually done a lot of burning of the bridges and and the rest of it but again that kind of this kind of regime has a logic of its own and uh, it's, it, it just needs to be seen as powerful. It's not about whether it is or not. It needs to feel that it is and, uh, and uh, appear that it is. And you're right, you know, there were many attempts to, uh, to try to negotiate. And, you know, with all my criticism of Zelensky, he actually he went into the electoral platform on wanting to have a permanent peace settlement with Russia and Putin repeatedly refused to meet with him even before this most recent war. So to say that somehow, you know, Ukrainian government was alienating Russia, no, they weren't. Like, you know, Putin had no interest uh, in negotiating anything. He had much bigger plans, right? He had much bigger plans. And indeed, there were a number of leaked documents over the years over this kind of the plans that uh, that existed in Russia, not least about through uh, changing Ukrainian constitution and keeping Yanukovych president for as long as possible, turning Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia into this kind of one autocratic bloc, right? But that wasn't on the cards because Ukrainians kicked Yanukovych out and the rest you know. So there are all sorts of speculations that we can make, but there are also facts. Like, you know, there is... Uh, there are some things that are quite straightforward. Well, there are many that are mucky. And the straightforward stuff is this. Russia is doing a neo-colonial genocidal invasion in Ukraine. Maybe NATO is part of the mix, maybe not as part of the reasons, but it in no way justifies what Russia is doing. Ukraine needs to get weapons to defend itself, yet it is not to be used as a justification for global militarization further. That is not, those things should not be conflated and we should be able to support Ukraine's right to resist and defend itself while simultaneously not supporting increasing global militarization. So those things I think are important and uh, and the underlying thing that we should all we should be fighting for internationally is building solidarities, listening to each other rather than those uh, uh, you know, uh, occasional journalists who, without understanding the context, uh, just pull some sort of scandalous line out of some letter and then try to build their careers and sell articles for clicks on those. Tr listening to each other, building solidarity, speaking with those who are fighting for justice in different countries so that we can we can fight capitalist imperialism, including its militarized expressions, anywhere we can together uh, up until the point where uh, we build an alternative world where wars are not possible anymore. I think I'll end at that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Yulia. I think uh, it gives people a lot to think about. And, uh, you know, as I always emphasize to people, uh, don't draw your conclusions about Ukraine from your pre-existing uh, sort of knee-jerk response. If the U.S. is doing it, it's got to be wrong. Uh, you got to look at the concrete situation on the ground and see, you know, need to be against all imperialisms. And uh, that's what, you know, international solidarity in the best of the green tradition as well as the socialist tradition should be about. So thanks again, Yulia. Uh, we'll be back next week. I will be in Syracuse next uh, Saturday and we'll probably do a question and answer session. And then I'll be for two weeks in South Korea at the Global Greens Congress. And uh, I will grab some people to be guests at uh, those two Saturdays, um, which we'll probably have to pre-record because three o'clock on Saturday, East Coast is 4 a.m. 
in South Korea. And I'd be willing to get up, but I'm not sure my guests would. So uh, those two shows will probably be just a uh, you know, discussion. So once again, thanks for being here. And everybody have a good week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much for having me. Have a nice evening, everybody. Sorry for the questions that didn't get answered. I'm going to try to go through the chat later uh, and answer more of them. Uh, have a good rest of the day, everyone. And it was great to see you again, Howie. Yeah.